Our scripture reading this morning is from Isaiah 2. which I will read here, and you may follow along from your bulletins. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills. And the nations shall flow to it, And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Thus far the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray now that you would give Pastor Bates the words that you would have him to share with us this morning. Give us ears to hear your truth, which is firm and secure. Help us to understand what it means to walk in your light instead of drifting in our own ways, which are often dark and unsure. Thank you that we may have confidence that you know our needs and the needs of those you have called us to serve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Thank you. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. It's uh, my first time to Grand Rapids. I've wanted to come because this is where I've been sending money for years. Uh, buying all these books, and uh, so I'm a proud supporter of your local economy, and uh, actually very thankful for the contribution you all have made. And uh, so I, uh, I've been a pastor for quite a number of years in, in our denomination in Florida, and, and then in Colorado, which where I, I still live. Uh, but uh, I now have the privilege of serving with our denomination's missions agency, which is Mission to the World. Uh, what we do is uh, we help the church accomplish the mission that Christ has given to the church. And, the, and Christ has given a mission to the church, one mission, and that mission is not to make disciples. That's not the mission. The mission is to make disciples of all nations. And uh, little prepositional phrases matter. Uh, and so uh, part of my j- uh, job is to help the church uh, accomplish that mission because we, that is something we can only do together uh, to see all the nations come and to gather to worship him, even as uh, our pastor uh, pa- passage in Scripture tells us this morning. A number of years ago, it was Thanksgiving Day, and our church was hosting a Thanksgiving dinner for uh, the homeless in our community. And I saw this young man, he was uh, uh, somewhere in his 30s, really hard to tell how old he was because he had been living on the streets all of his adult life. And so I just asked him, I said, you know, what can we as a church do 
to help out you and others who are homeless in our area. And he said, well, you know, there are vacant lots all around town, but we can't camp on them because they always run us off. So maybe your church could buy one of these vacant lots, and some of us have some carpentry skills. We could build these little huts, and, and we could live there because really, we just all want to be left alone. And I looked at him and I thought, man. I said, friend, we love you too much to do that. We love you too much to do that. I could just imagine this, uh, this scene like from Calcutta with these little shacks and just trash everywhere. Presbyterian church becomes slumlord, you know, uh, that sort of thing. And I'm thinking, what a horrible way to live. A horrible way to live. Here's a man whose vision was too small. All he wanted out of life was a plywood shack and his bottle and to be left alone because he could not imagine happiness any other way. I wonder if our prayers are really all that much better. I mean, think about what we really pray about when we pray. And so what do we ask God for? So, you know, most of us don't pray to be rich. That's not, you know, we just, we just want enough money that we don't have to worry about it too much. And, and um, you know, we, we just want a decent place to live. We want our kids to stay out of trouble. Uh, we would like to stay reasonably healthy. Um, you know, we want the bad guys out of our neighborhood, the terrorists out of our country. And basically, we just want to be left alone. We just, we just want, that's all we want. We don't want a lot. And I imagine as God hears our prayers and he says, son, daughter, I love you way too much to give you just that. God has such a bigger vision for us for the church, for this world, than we have. And we're, we are often settling for way too little, longing for too little. Our, our, our appetites are not big enough. And so here in Isaiah chapter 2, God gives us a foretaste, a, a, a picture of the promise that he has for his people, a picture of what he has for this world. And he does this to create a longing in us so that we will not settle for less. So let's begin by, by looking at this vision that God has for the world, and then we'll look at how this vision is going to come about. So first, uh, God's vision. We see a world coming together in worship. And it starts with this mountain. Now, in the ancient world, mountains played a special role uh, in the religious life of people because the mountains uh, are where the heavens and the earths meet. If you look out my front window, I see Pikes Peak, 14,000 feet up, and believe me, it's where heaven and earth meet. You know, it's, uh, it's way up there. And so they believe this. In fact, that's why they would often construct what they're called high places. These high places would be places of worship on top of the mountains because heaven and earth would meet in these places. Temples were put there. Uh, in fact, even when they built the temples, oftentimes the, the roof of the temple would look like the, the sky, the heavens, uh, the other parts would look like the earth. It's where the two come together. And so Isaiah is saying that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem, will be lifted up above all the other mountains. And he's not speaking about a geological event. He's speaking uh, metaphorically that, that this will be the place where all the nations come to worship. This will be supreme. They won't be worshiping God any other place. They won't be, there won't be these false gods, these false idols, these false places of worship. Instead, notice that the nations are streaming to the Lord. Now, typically streams go down. They don't go up. But here the nations are streaming to the Lord to worship him. And when he talks about the nations, and remember the context. We have Israel and we have the nations. And so the nations are all the people who currently are not worshiping God. 
uh, those who are outside of the family of God. But here's what he's saying is, in these last days, all the nations, all the people of the earth are going to be streaming to the Lord. And when that day comes, the, the world is going to be united in worship, united in acknowledging Christ as king. And when that comes about, then peace comes to the earth. And so we have this incredible peace dividend. They will beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Uh, these weapons that have been used for destruction will be transformed into tools of cultivation. Instead of taking life, they will end up giving life and, and providing for life. And then the, later on, Isaiah goes on and he tells us more later in the book uh, that that day comes, there'll be no sickness, no death, no loneliness, no hunger. Everyone will live with peace and abundance. They'll, they'll feast on the best food and the richest of wine. Later on, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus shows up. He's 30 years old, and he begins his earthly ministry this way. He walks into his local hometown synagogue. He's basically unknown at this point. He walks into the hometown synagogue, and as he walks in, someone hands him the scroll from Isaiah. And he opens the scroll, and we read this in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus says, you know all those promises in Isaiah about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, when everything is made right? I'm the fulfillment of that. I am the king who's come about to bring about this new world. And then what does he do? Luke 4 tells us he leaves that synagogue and he goes around from, from town to town, village to village. He begins to give sight to the blind. He, he gives uh, hearing to the deaf. He, the lame walk. The dead are even later on are raised. The, the, he feeds the hungry. What's he doing? These miracles that Jesus does are not merely attention-getting devices. Uh, rather, they are signs of the kingdom. In fact, if you look at every single miracle that Jesus does, Every single miracle is in some sense prophesied in the Old Testament showing of what the kingdom of God is going to be like. He's, he's giving a preview of coming attractions because in the kingdom of heaven, there will be no one who's deaf. In the kingdom of heaven, there will be no one who's blind. In the kingdom of heaven, there'll be no tears. There'll be no hunger. So he feeds the 5,000. He, he even turns water to wine. Why? He turns water to wine because Isaiah says, when the kingdom of God comes, we're going to feast and we're going to eat, and the hills are going to drip with aged wine, not Welch's. We are, we're going to dine and delight together. And so that's what the kingdom of God is, is going to be like. Now, doesn't your heart long for that? I mean, we live in a world that is terribly broken. I have a good friend, I was telling them last night, I have a good friend whose wife died about two years ago, the week before his son got married. I did her funeral, his wedding. This is a broken world. I'm tired of going to funerals. I'm tired of hearing about people with cancer. Your heart begins to break, and then you look around, and 
You know, I, I, I ride my bike through, through town or run through town, and there are homeless camps. I mean, people camping out in Colorado in the wintertime because they're mentally ill or addicted or both. And you, you turn on the news, and I mean, what's happening in Palestine? Do you see what's going on in Ukraine? And, and it breaks our hearts uh, of the, the death, the destruction. Uh, there are 350 million people living in the world today, not in poverty, but in extreme hunger. Extreme hunger. Last year in India, 120 Christians were murdered, 400 churches destroyed, 50,000 Christians have been displaced because they've come under attack by, by Hindu nationalists. Doesn't your heart cry out for something more? I mean, we want more than just a little bit of peace, a little bit of better house, a little bit better kids. Say, Lord, come. And, that, and when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that's what we're praying. We're praying, Lord, fix this, because at the end of the day, our hope as Christians is not that we die and go to heaven, but it is one day, as Revelation tells us, that heaven comes down to earth, and King Jesus makes everything right. The world is a mess, and our prayers are often small, but God says, one day, I'm going to fix this world. I'm going to make things right. And that is the longing of our hearts. Well, how is this going to come about? Well, Isaiah tells us that two things happen that result in this transformation of the world. We see, first of all, we see that they are attracted to God and the word goes out. People are drawn to God to worship God and the word is going out. So first, this attraction. Notice that in uh, verse 3, we find that the nations are being drawn to God. In other words, they're not being compelled. This isn't some sort of Constantinian vision where they're being forced to come and to worship God. They're being drawn. And notice also, it's the nations that are evangelizing each other. These nations that were not worshiping God, notice what they're doing. They say to one another, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that we may teach his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. See, they, they are being drawn to God. They want to come to God. The people are drawn to God because they're seeing his beauty. Uh, in our tradition, we talk about irresistible grace. And, and people will think about that as, oh no, don't give me grace. No, like they're trying to resist. That's not the picture of irresistible grace. The picture of irresistible grace is God is so beautiful, he's irresistible. He's like that chocolate cake on the table. You just can't walk past it. He, you, you see his beauty. You're drawn to him. That's what's happening to the nations. They're drawn to him. And, and that was how the people of God were supposed to live. God calls out Israel, and God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he says, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people. But God, when he chooses Israel, he does not choose Israel instead of the other nations. He chooses Israel for the sake of the other nations. He says to Abraham, it is through you that all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so what was supposed to happen was that Israel was supposed to live in this covenant relationship with God where they're living in obedience to him and are living under his smile. And that as the other nations saw them living under the smile of God, they'd be drawn and say, I want that. I want to be like that. They were to be a light to the nations. And there's a time when Israel did this. Uh, we have uh, King David, he expands the, the kingdom, he brings security, and then comes along his son Solomon. And Solomon builds this glorious kingdom 
under the power of God. And, and, it, and it's beautiful, and, and people are, are drawn to it. So we get to 1 Kings chapter 4, and we not only read about Solomon's wealth, but here's what 1 Kings chapter 4 says. It says, And Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and all the days of Solomon. Get that? Every man under his vine and fig tree. Doesn't that stir your heart? Like, I've never imagined having a vine or a fig tree, but here's the image. Everybody's rich. Everybody's prosperous. They have peace. They have prosperity. I mean, life is good. And when this happens, by the way, the other nations around Israel notice, and they begin to come to see what's going on. Remember the Queen of Sheba? She's a queen in Africa, and she hears about Solomon's wisdom and what's going on in the nation of Israel, and she says, I've got to see this for myself. And so she travels up north from Africa to see this kingdom, and she leaves glorifying God. See, there's to be a light to the nations. But what happens? Israel... Israel moves away from that. Instead of living in obedience to God, uh, they, they live in disobedience. They, they, they begin to uh, worship false gods. They go into idolatry. And then the rest of Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 3, which we did not read, but Israel, instead of following God's ways, becomes greedy, arrogant, selfish, and failed to care for the poor. And, and so as a result, instead of attracting the nations, they become repulsive. And they, they cease to be what they're called to be. See, as a church, Jesus says we're to be like a city set on a hill. We're to be a, be, be a light, not hid under a bushel. We're to be, there's to be such beauty in our community that people are being drawn to us. And again, we get a glimpse of that in the book of Acts. We also see that in how God is working around the world. When the uh, COVID pandemic first hit, uh, many governments just about all, enacted some very strict uh, guidelines to, to protect their populations. And so people were not allowed to, to gather or to uh, do different things. And it was hard in many places, but for the poor around the world, this was brutal because they lived day to day. They'd make enough money to eat that day. Well, when they couldn't go to work, they had no money for food. And so uh, together as a, as a denomination, Mission to the World, we we collected a compassion offering. Well, some of that money went to one of our national partners in a, in a closed country in South Asia. And he took that money and he bought uh, beans and uh, lentil and salt, and he began distributing out this food. And he distributed it out to 561 families. Most of these families were Hindu and Muslim. And as he uh, distributes the food and people begin to see the love of God, uh, it begins, the changes begin to happen. Uh, by September 2020, 143 Muslims, were, excuse me, 143 Hindus were baptized and two new churches were started. The reason I mention bapt baptism is the mark. People will say something, but when they're baptized, they're saying, okay, I'm in. 143 Hindus were, were baptized. Two new churches were planted. A year later, four more Muslims joined these, con uh, joined these congregations. Now, I know what you're saying. I've got a bit of cynicism in myself. Of course they became Christians. We bought them. You know, we bought them. That's not what happened. Because in this region of this area, Christians are under intense persecution. 
Christians had recently been murdered for their faith. Presbyterian churches that were there were burned down. Uh, people were enduring just terrible persecutions. In other words, to move from being a Hindu to a Christian did not make your life better. That almost guaranteed persecution and suffering. Why did they become Christians? Because they said, if this is what God is like, I'm in. They saw the beauty of the gospel. They were drawn in. They were attracted. And so, uh, so what we see is the church is to be that. We're, we're to be a, a community of people that, that show the beauty of Christ on display. But not only is the church to be an attractive community, uh, we read that it is a sending community. Notice this, that the key uh, to this vision, what makes it all possible, is that the world is united in worship. This isn't where um, everyone just kind of is at peace and says, why can't we all just get along, although that would be nice. This past week, I was uh, on Friday, I was on a panel at one of our local public schools. It was a charter school. And um, I was on a panel, and on the panel was a Muslim from Palestine. Sitting next to him was a Jewish rabbi. Next to him was a Jewish skeptic, doesn't believe in God at all. Uh, next to him was uh, a, a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints. Next to him was a Hindu, the Catholic priest, and then me. And uh, you can imagine at times things got a little tense between the Palestinians and the Jews. And I mean, we weren't supposed to talk about politics, but how do you not talk about politics in a situation like this? And very tense. And every one of us on the panel, every one of us all agreed, you know, we do need a bit more tolerance and respect and honoring of one another. And we need that. But that's not going to change the world. That's not the hope of the world. The hope of the world, according to Isaiah, is the only way the world is going to come and be at peace is when the world acknowledges God is king. The reason the world is broken, the reason the world is a mess, is because we're in rebellion against God. And the only way it's going to be restored is to be restored to that following of God. And so the word, the word has to go out. Uh, the word has to go out or else, um, or else it, that can't happen. And so we see here that the, the nations then are ascending the mountain of the Lord. Here's the problem. Who can ascend the mountain of the Lord? The psalmist asked this question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does, does not swear deceitfully. So here's all you have to do. Here's the qualification for being among the nations streaming to the mountain of the Lord. You have to have a clean hands and a pure heart. Who's got that? I mean, we're all excluded. We can't do it. We, we're not qualified. And so when Jesus came, he not only, not only announced that the kingdom of God is at hand, he also called us to faith and repentance. Because the only way we can become part of this kingdom is if we have clean hands and a pure heart, and the only way we get that is in him. You know the way that the, the New Testament most often describes us as Christians? It is as being in Christ, in him, uh, that we are united to Christ. And here's what happens. When Jesus Christ comes and announces the gospel and asks us to put our faith in him, we become united to him. And when we become united to him, then everything that is his is now ours, and everything that is ours is now his. It's, it's sort of like marriage. 
A number of years ago, I knew this man. He was a, uh, a young seminary student. He was dirt poor. He drove an old, beat-up, junker car. He lived in an apartment with another poor student, and, uh, and it was just like your, it was like your nasty college apartment. He's going to seminary. Well, at the same time he's going to seminary, there's a woman named Dixie who started taking classes. Dixie used to be Miss University of Alabama. Roll Tides, I know you beat us, I'm sorry. Okay, uh, Miss University of Alabama. Her husband used to be a quarterback at Alabama. He became a famous sports agent. He was a sports agent, for those of you who are older, Bill Parcells, Oral Hersizer, uh, and uh, Payne Stewart, among many others. In other words, he was a pretty successful guy. He was in the plane that crashed with Payne Stewart and died. So Dixie is a widow, but she's a rich widow. She and the seminary students strike up a friendship. She starts dating this nerdy, philosophy-loving seminary, Mr. Quarterback of Alabama, Mr. Philosophy Seminary Student. She marries this seminary student. He no longer lives in that ratty apartment. He doesn't drive a junker. I've been to, uh, to their house, same neighborhood where Lou Holtz was living and all these other golfers. He's doing okay now. Now, what did he do to deserve to live in this rich house? He married Dixie. That's what he did. And when the two got married... His debts became hers, her riches became his. And so when you become into Christ, there's this great exchange that takes place. Your sin has been laid upon him, the iniquity of us all. And therefore now we stand before the Father completely without guilt or shame. But that's not all. Not only is our guilt taken away, but Christ's righteousness is given to us. I want you to think, Christian, about how God thinks about you. What does the Father think about you? Uh, and, and, and you now have been robed in the righteousness of Christ. See, oftentimes we still, we still think that God relates to us on the basis of our performance. How, how God feels about me is based on how I am doing. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is if you put your faith in him, you are now justified, you're now righteous, you're now holy. Uh, I've done a bunch of weddings, uh, a bunch, and uh, I have the best place in the house at every wedding. I get to stand right here, and I stand right next to the groom, and we get the first sight of the bride. And so the doors will open and I'm standing next to the groom, and he sees his bride, usually for the first time on the wedding day, in her, in her gown, and she is always gorgeous. There are no ugly brides. Never. Never. And I, I, he sees her, and you can imagine, and so then I look at him, always, and you can see his face, and it's just full of delight, and he's thinking, I can't believe she's marrying me. And I look at him, and I go, I can't believe she's marrying you, you know? <laughs> You know, I mean, he, he's just so full of delight. Christian, when the Father looks at you, he doesn't look at you based on your performance. He looks at you in the wedding dress that has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, and he says, wow. He is stunned at your glory and your beauty. And that is what happens when we put our faith in him. And so how can the nations come to him? Is the way the nations come to him is they come through, through, through the righteousness and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's the only way. And so, so what uh, uh, the, this Isaiah says here, what God says through Isaiah, it says, 
For that to happen, the word of God must go out. So it says in verse 3 that out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so here's the key. The key for the nations to come in is the word must go out. Uh, the word must go out. It must be, bring about that, that transformation. Uh, so our world is going to be fixed, but only through the blood and the, the, uh, the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel has to go out. See, the nations cannot come unless they know the beauty of Christ. That's why Paul says you know, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But how can they call on him in whom they have not heard? They can't. And, and how can they hear unless someone tells them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? How beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. See, it cannot happen without missions. If you, you want to see the world transformed, the gospel has to go out. I'm not against uh, uh, you know, political solutions. I'm not against any of that. I'm just saying they're temporary at best. The only hope of the world is Jesus. The only hope of the world is the gospel going out. People must hear the good news. Around 1% of the people in Japan are Christian, maybe that. Cambodia, 3%. Turkey, less than 1%. Which means the overwhelming majority of this, these people will be born, live their entire lives, and die without ever knowing the hope of Jesus. They're never going to know because no one is there to tell them. Uh, you know, or even consider uh, you know, something like Europe, you know, you know, Christian Europe. Uh, England, less than 5% of the people attend any sort of church. I have a friend who's lived in Scotland for many years now. He said, I've never met a Christian in the wild. He said, I've never met a Christian outside of a church function. He's lived in, uh, in Edinburgh. He's lived in Aberdeen. He said, I've never met a Christian outside of a church function, which means most of the people there in Scotland where, where you know, Presbyterians get their heritage will be born, live, die and not know about the hope of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, the, the news is worse in uh, you know, other places, Turkey, Senegal, uh, others, uh, and it means that uh, the only way for them to know, the only way for this to come about, is the gospel has to go out to them, and for the gospel to go out to them, somebody's got to go. And for somebody to go requires incredible sacrifice. You know, I, I just know in interviewing people who are preparing to go, and and, you know, and I can imagine this as, as a father, now a grandfather, and, and they're, they're going and go, my, my parents don't want me to take away their grandkids. And my, my parents love Jesus, but don't take away my grandkids. And I get it. I get it. And they're thinking, man, I've got I've to leave my family. I've got to leave my friends. I've got to leave a career. I've got to go and learn a language in most cases, and I'm going to feel like a three-year-old for at least <laughs> you know, years and probably never actually totally fit into this culture. I'm, I'm going to feel awkward. It's going to be difficult. I've got to get along with other missionaries, and that's difficult. I mean, all of this, it is difficult. It is painful. It is hard. It is suffering. But, but Paul says this. Paul said when he did his ministry that he was making up that which is lacking in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't sound very reformed. What's lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What's missing? What, what did Jesus not accomplish? According to Paul, this is this. As Paul said, there's something missing in the sufferings of Christ, and that is for the sufferings of Christ to be of merit to the world, someone's got to suffer to take the gospel to them. And the call of missions is the call to suffering. Someone's got to go. And so that means that 
someone here may need to go. And if you've never thought about it, my challenge is, is why? Have you ever thought about how God could, might be able to use you? It also means that many of us have to give. I know many of us will say, you know, uh, hey, somebody's got to stay back and support these people. I'm one of those. I'm one of those stay back and support these people. But if we're going to stay back and support, let's make sure we stay back and support. Let's not tip. Let's support. Uh, Third John says that we are to support missionaries in a manner worthy of God. That is an obligation of the church. The uh, famous missionary William Carey, as he was preparing to go to India, was meeting with his friends, and one of the friends said, as, as Carey described the, the lostness of India and, and the opportunity for the gospel, his friend said, it sounds like there's a gold mine down there, but, it, but it's so deep you can't hardly see it. And Carey said, I'll go down if you will hold the rope. I'll go down if you will hold the rope. We hold the rope by praying. We hold the rope by giving. We hold the rope by encouraging and supporting those who go. And so for all of us, it takes all of us to do the work of the mission. We need those to go down the mine. We need those who will hold the rope. But for all of us, we need to be engaged. And again, for some, that means leaving. It means sacrificing. Uh, it means uh, giving up careers and dreams. But we've got something better, right? One day, they're going to beat their swords into plowshares. One day, they're going to beat their spears into pruning hooks. One day, Every man is going to set it under his vine and his fig tree. One day there'll be no sickness, no death, no sadness. And that's a vision worth living for, and that's a vision worth dying for. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you that you give us this hope that you are going to fix this broken world. Father, we, we, we confess that oftentimes our desire is for so little. Uh, we just want little things, even though, I mean, they certainly are big to us, but our longings are not deep enough. So, Lord, we, we cry out, even as you taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, Lord, we know the only way this will happen is for you to come and bring the fullness of your reign. And so, Father, we come and we give our lives to you. We trust you. We believe that you love us because you died, Jesus, because you died for us. And so, because we trust you, we can offer our lives without reservation. And we pray, Lord, here I am. Do with me whatever you want. I'll, I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll give whatever you want me to give because I believe you love me. And I can trust you with all that I have. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the hope that we have in you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.